the, <clears throat> the title of this evening's talk is The Pure and Beautiful Mind. <clears throat> and we'll begin with a poem by William Butler Yeats called <clears throat> The Celtic Twilight. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. With this evening's talk, we'll explore some of the wholesome and beautiful states or factors of mind, chittasikas as they're called in Pali. These are associated with the development and the fruits of concentration, with the development of metta practice, and with the deepening and fruits of insight, vipassana practice, all of which includes a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness, the chief, as the Buddha called mindfulness, this quality or factor of mind that needs to accompany us all through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise teachings and analysis of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed disclosed in the Abhidhamma Pitaka, or basket, as the translation of the word Pitaka. So we'll just do a a brief exploration of what this Abhidhamma basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three baskets, one of three divisions of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative uh, record of the Buddhist teachings. The first basket, or the first collection, is the Book of Discipline, containing the rules of conduct for the monks uh, and for the nuns, and all of the guidelines um, governing and living in community, meaning in this case in a monastic community. Though many of these guidelines can also be applied to living a lay Buddhist, living in a lay Buddhist community, living as a Buddhist practitioner in a family, living with a partner, or living by oneself, or temporarily living in a community of practitioners such as we are here in this retreat. The second collection or basket brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings, all of the suttas that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. And the third collection or basket is that of the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket has quite a distinctly different character or different quality than the other two. Whereas it's not a a record of discourses and discussions occurring in real-life settings, uh, which both of the other baskets are very much rooted in. But rather, the Abhidhamma uh, is a very clear uh, 
detailed and refined disclosure of the mind and mental processes that combine psychology and ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective into quite a unique and remarkable synthesis. And it's experiential in meaning. And what I mean by experiential is that we, it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I think it's important in that it's helpful and, and inspiring uh, at some point along the way of practice to actually hear at least some details about some of the more refined experiential processes that take place in practice to understand a bit more of how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my practice, I've found this information actually quite interesting in and of itself, as well as the fact that this information, this understanding, can help to counter the fears and maybe other averse reactions along with the made-up and sometimes fanciful stories and analysis, as well as misperceptions and misunderstandings, and the attachments and the clinging that can come up in practice uh, to what might be unusual or unfamiliar experiences, or also even in relationship to our more familiar experiences. One of my Burmese teachers, Sado Bandita, called these experiences the Dhamma delights of our practice. The Abhidhamma speaks about 38 wholesome mental factors, 38 wholesome mental states, some of which are both wholesome and beautiful. And these are associated with the development phase of concentration and also with the manifestation of absorption, jhana, with many of these states also occurring uh, to varying degrees during the development and the manifestation of metta, and then ongoing into vipassana practice as mindfulness and insight unfold and blossom. 29 of these wholesome and beautiful mental states or mental factors are universally developed throughout our practice. Six of them are considered to be occasional and are wholesome, and this is important, and are wholesome only if they're accompanied by a wholesome consciousness. All of this will become uh, clearer as we explore these various mental factors this evening. The first five factors are active, wholesome mental factors that are part of both the initial and uh, the ongoing development of concentration, uh, particularly pure concentration practice, and also with the focus of attention that's involved with metta practice with the first two factors also being necessary and active components throughout the practice of insight, throughout the practice of vipassana.
the last three of these first five factors manifest as active, wholesome, experiential states during specific, specific stages uh, of the development and manifestation of consciousness or concentration and jhana absorption, and also in relationship to metta to varying degrees. They're also active during particular aspects of vipassana practice. So, there are aspects through all of our practice practices. So these first five wholesome factors of mind, <clears throat> they're aspects of practice that, in fact, each one of you are experiencing to whatever degrees, to varying degrees. Right here, right now, in this retreat. So first, first I'll just list uh, these first of five wholesome mental uh, factors that are associated, as I've said, with the development of concentration, with metta, and with insight practice. The first, in English, initial application, vitaka, in Pali. The second, sustained application, vichara, in Pali. Only when these two factors are accompanied by a healthy, wholesome mind consciousness are these first two mental factors, wholesome factors of mind. So they're called occasionals. Unwholesome application and sustaining this application of the mind on something unwholesome is certainly possible. As I'm sure all of us, we all know from our own experience that that's possible. I mean, most likely, each of us have, at times, applied and sustained our attention on various unwholesome, maybe even harmful or hurtful or totally unnecessary or maybe frivolous or unskillful and insensitive activities. So that's the first two, initial application vitaka and sustained application vichara. The third of these first five mental factors is uh, zest or joy, and the Pali word is piti. The fourth is a, a sweet happiness, Pali word is sukha. And the fifth is one-pointedness, ikagata, ikagata. So now I'd like to spend a little bit of time exploring each of these in a bit more depth. The first wholesome factor of mind, vitaka, translated as I've said, as initial application, meaning it's the application of the mind to the object. Vitaka has the characteristic of directing the mind into the object. And in our case here, for example, sensations of the breath at the spot, or the movement of the breath in the belly, or to a particular metaphrase and the internal visual image of the metta object, such as a benefactor, or a dear friend, etc. Vitaka's function uh, is to strike at the object, as the very graphic uh, description in the Abhidhamma speaks about. 
the process experientially manifests as leading or training the mind to the object. It's kind of like training a puppy. My mind is kind of like a puppy. (laughs) A lot of times, actually. Vitaka has the special task and the fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, sleepiness and lethargy. And Vitaka is very closely associated, closely associated, connected to intention, right intention, or skillful, wise, wholesome intention, as is spoken about in the Noble Eightfold Path. The second wholesome factor of Mainichara, sustained application, Vichara has the characteristic of continued pressure or stroking, as it's described in the Abhidhamma on the object, in the sense of staying with it and seeing and knowing how it's manifesting. It's the continuing and sustaining exercise of the mind on the object. And of course, in our case here, it's the breath sensation at the anapana spot or the sensations of the in and out breath at the abdominal area or the metaphrase and the image of the metta object. Vichara temporarily totally inhibits the hindrance of doubt in deep states of concentration in jhana states and to varying degrees weakens doubt overall throughout one's ongoing concentration in metta and vipassana, one's insight practice. There are a couple of really wonderful metaphors or similes in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma highlighting the difference between vitaka and vichara. So this is from the commentaries, the Abhidhamma commentaries. Vitaka, like a bird spreading out its wings to fly. Initial application. Vichara, like a bird gliding through the air with outstretched wings. Sustained application. The third factor of mind, uh, zest or joy, piti and pali, This is an occasional. Why? Because only if it manifests with no identification and no attachment is it wholesome and beautiful. The mental characteristics of piti actually can be really quite endearing and can be explained as delight or a positive or pleasurable interest in the object of attention. Its function is to refresh the mind, refresh the body. It pervades the mind and the body in its initial stages, kind of with experiences kind of like thrills, sometimes uh, described as rapture, though actually this word doesn't quite cover all of its nuances. And we'll explore that a little more later on. It often manifests as a mind 
and body quality of elation, uh, gladness, joy, sometimes even mirth, merriment, a kind of exultation, exhilaration, and a sense of satisfaction in the mind. In the commentaries, there are five grades of PT that are distinguished that can arise when vitaka and vichara are in place and perking along in our practice. And I'm sure as I go over each of these, <clears throat> you will recognize some of them um, as your or your own experiences uh, that have occurred for your pra- in your practice to varying degrees. So the first is called minor joy or minor zest. And it's able to raise the hairs on the body. The second, momentary joy or momentary zest, like small flashes of lightning in the mind. The next, a showering joy or a showering zest. And this breaks over the whole body again and again like waves, kind of like waves at the seashore. The next one is uplifting joy or uplifting zest. And this can cause the body to feel as though it's levitating. It's lifting up, which actually I've heard uh, uh, for some yogis has uh, has occurred. <laughs> There's a story that my friend and co-teacher Asado Vivekananda tells about a monk uh, at a particular monastery in Burma who was doing a sitting practice uh, on his bed in his room, and he would rise up and then fall over again and again and again. Well, it's against the rules to brag about your practice, but in fact this monk did brag about his practice, and uh, other monks wanted to see it, wanted to see if it was really true. So he invited other monks to come and stand outside the window of his little uh, kuti, his little practice uh, uh, cottage, uh, to watch. And so he did. He They stood there and watched, and uh, at a certain time came watch the show, and he performed. <laughs> so it said. <clears throat> the next is pervading joy, or pervading zest. And this floods the whole mind and body with a kind of refreshing, bright, elation, the sense of that. And in the Abhidhamma description, it's like a flood that fills a cavern. As a factor of mind, a sustained PT, particularly PT that's experienced much more as a mind state than in the body, this has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. And with a very focused and mindful, absorbed attention on the object, as happens with the manifestation of jhana, and sometimes also happens in metta practice, PT can temporarily completely inhibit ill will. PT at this point then is a mind state. It's not much at all uh, occurring in the body. In Vipassana practice, some teachers talk about the corruptions of insight. And all the manifestations and states that I've listed so far, that we've explored so far, if they are accompanied with a self-identification, an attachment to them, 
then they are corruptions of insight. But if they are experienced and related to without any self-identification and without any attachment, they're not corruptions of insight, they're just occurrences happening because of practice, practice manifestations. So the fourth of these five, these first five, is uh, a, a sweet happiness, sukha in Pali. This state of mind is wholesome and beautiful only, only if there's no identification and no attachment to it when it's occurring. So consequently, it's an occasional. This mental factor is a very pleasant, happy mental feeling born out of mind contact with the object of attention, such as the breath at the Anapanaspad, or possibly breath sensations in the belly, or uh, a metaphrase and the object of metta. Sukha is a sweet, blissful mental feeling born out of detachment from all sensual pleasures. And so it's explained actually as unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it can be very, very gratifying. It can engender a deep sense of gratification. So consequently, it's very easy to get quite attached to this experience. So mindfulness needs to remain strong, strong and clear. Sukha counters and weakens the hindrance of restlessness and worry. Although piti and sukha are quite closely connected, they're not the same. So I'd like to uh, read uh, a little bit from this uh, commentary description, commentary to the Abhidhamma description of piti and sukha. Piti, or joy, sometimes called rapture, is like a weary traveler going along a path in a great desert in summer and is overcome by heat and thirst. This person sees another person on the path and asks, where is water? The other says, soon there will be a dense forest with a lake. Go there and you will get some water. Upon hearing this, the traveler is glad, joyful and delighted, and then more glad and delighted when they see leaves on the ground and then people with wet clothes and hair and they hear the sounds of wild fowl. And then see the dense green forest like a net of jewels growing by the edge of the lake. And see the clear transparent water and water lilies growing in the lake. And then this weary traveler is more and more joyful, glad, and delighted. So that's piti. Sukha. Ease, sweet happiness, is like the traveler entering the forest shade and enjoying the water. The commentary describes it like this. This being descends into the lake, bathes and drinks with pleasure, eats the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorns himself or herself with lotus flowers, 
then ascends the lake, dries off with a bathing cloth, and lies down in the cool shade with the breeze blowing ever so slightly and says, Oh bliss, oh bliss. <laughs> with the sense of ease and sweet happiness grown very strong at that point. And the commentary says, Enjoying the taste of the object. So piti, joy, rapture, and sukha, the sweet bliss of happiness. They're closely connected, but they're not the same. And piti gains prominence before sukha. And it provides, it's, it provides the causal foundation for sukha to arise. The fifth of these five wholesome mental factors is one-pointedness, ikagata. And this is a universal mental factor. And it literally means a one-pointed state. This mental factor is the primary component. It's really the essence of concentration, the essence of samatha. Be it sustained samatha, and potentially absorbed concentration, a development of absorbed concentration, or a momentary focus of attention, as in the vipassana practice and in metta practice. One-pointedness temporarily weakens sensual desire to some degree overall, while, while it's manifesting meditatively. In the deep absorption concentration of the fourth jhana, the development and the maturation of ikagata completely temporarily inhibits sensual desire overall and also weakens one's tendency towards blindly, towards habitually getting caught in various aspects of sensual desire when there's a maturing capacity for a momentary focus of attention that's accompanied by strong mindfulness, both of which are totally necessary conditions for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. The function of ikakata, this one-pointedness, is that one is able to very closely contemplate the object. Though it can't perform this function all by itself. It requires the joint or it requires the cooperative action of the other four factors that we've just been exploring, each performing its own particular function. So again, vitaka, applying the attention, along with all of the various other associated states on the object, vichara, sustaining the attention, along with all the other various associated mental states on the object, and piti, bringing delight and interest in relationship to the object, and sukha, experiencing this sweet happiness in relationship to the object. With the manifestation of jhana, there's a sweet happiness. The sweet happiness of sukha is actually in the manifestation in relationship to the manifestation of the jhana itself. 
So these are the first five wholesome factors of mind that are associated with the development of concentration, maybe possibly jhana for some people, metta practice, and insight, vipassana practice. So now we'll go on uh, and look at the other beneficial factors of mind, somewhat more briefly, uh, that are associated with concentration and metta and vipassana practice, some of which uh, we already explored in this retreat, at least to some degree. So, beginning with decision or resolve or intention, and the Pali word for this is adimoka. This is an occasional, as it's wholesome only if it's associated with a wholesome object of consciousness. Adimoka literally means the releasing of the mind into the object. And so it's rendered as a decision or resolution. It has the characteristic of conviction. And the function is not groping around. It helps to create and to support uh, a clarity of purpose in relationship to engaging in practice. It manifests as a decisiveness regarding the object of attention. Its nearest and its most immediate cause is that it needs something to connect to and be convinced about. So, for example, in our case here, making a resolve or an intention to give one's complete attention to the breath at the Anapana spot or to a metta phrase and to the metta, a particular object of metta or in Vipassana practice, for instance, maybe resolving to give full attention to bodily sensations or mental states. In the Abhidhamma, uh, Adimoka has been compared to a stone pillar owing to its unshakable resolve uh, regarding the object. So the next one we're looking at is energy. The Pali word is virya. And this is another occasional. It's an occasional wholesome mind state. Because it's wholesome only when it's associated with wholesome activity in practice. Virya is the state or the action of one who's vigorous. Its characteristic is exertion and supporting, or as it's stated in the Abhidhamma, mobilizing or marshalling. Its function is to support the states that it's associated with. And it manifests as non-collapsing. The closest cause for this energy to manifest is a sense of urgency, spiritual urgency. It can also actually be encouraged and stimulated by engaging in an experience that arouses energy. Maybe something as simple as taking a refreshing walk or doing 15 or 20 minutes of mindful yoga, maybe tai chi, maybe qigong, or some mindful exercise or any, actually, any wholesome activity that stirs 
and inspires one's internal energy towards vigorous action, and in this case meaning towards energetic practice. So the next wholesome factor of mind that we'll explore is wholesome desire. The Pali word is kanda, meaning the desire to act, the desire to perform or, or achieve an action or achieve a result. And this kind of desire actually needs to be distinguished from unwholesome desire that stems from greed, that stems from lust, Chanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. It can function as the virtuous desire, for instance, to achieve a worthy goal, as in relationship to our practice. And it's spoken about metaphorically in the Abhidhamma commentaries as the stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object which I think is a really beautiful expression and image that says a lot. It's not about grabbing for experience, but stretching forth the mind's hand toward the object. Opening, receiving. So there's still a a fairly long list left uh, of universal beautiful factors or states of mind, some of which we've already explored in this retreat to at least to some degree. So I'm going to go through them quite quickly right now. The first is faith, which we have explored. Mindfulness is the next one. And in my notes I wrote mindfulness with three exclamation points after it. The next one is, in Pali, hiri, which translates as moral shame, followed by the next one, which is otapa, which translates as moral dread or fear of wrongdoing. These are two beautiful mental factors. Hiri, otapa are considered to be absolutely necessary for the protection and the functioning of the family, the community, the world, and in relationship to all relationships. The next is non-greed, then non-hatred, and going on, neutrality of heart, neutrality of mind, and this is associated directly with equanimity going on with tranquility of mind, tranquility of heart, which is extensive calmness, really deeply developed calmness, extensively developed calmness, tranquility of consciousness, and then lightness of mind, lightness of heart. And this is a brightness, brightness of mind, lightness and brightness of mind and heart. It's the opposite of a heaviness, that kind of sinking mind, sinking heart, sinking consciousness that we've all experienced at times. 
malleability of the mind, malleability of the heart, meaning non-rigidity. And this is a very, very important quality for our, our practice. Malleability of consciousness, wieldiness of mind, wieldiness of heart, meaning the ability of the mind to go where it needs to go. Wieldiness of consciousness. Proficiency of mind and heart, meaning clarity and quickness of mind and heart. Proficiency of consciousness. Honesty or uprightness of mind, uprightness of heart. Honesty and uprightness of consciousness. The next four <clears throat> are the divine abidings, the Brahma Viharas, which are beautiful and wholesome. So, metta, unconditional loving kindness, boundless, unconditional compassion, karuna, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita, meaning joy in relationship to others' success, others' happiness, others' others' joy, another's joy. And the last of the Brahma-viharas are the divine abidings, equanimity, upekka in Pali. All of this is developing. All of these are developing through our practice as we keep practicing. So there are three more mental factors, and they're called the abstinences. There, these abstinences are three distinct mental factors that the Buddha spoke about that come about through three different types or levels of abstinence. And really all three of these are very important for the development of insight, concentration, and kindness, loving kindness. First is what's called natural abstinence meaning the abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm to oneself and to others <clears throat> when an opportunity arises to engage in them due to various conditions and particular circumstances, such as one's social position, one's age, maybe in relationship to one's level of education, maybe in relationship to some particular circumstance in one's life at a particular time. So one naturally, the natural abstinence, one naturally abstains from these mental and physical deeds out of one's innate wisdom and one's innate compassion. The second type of abstinence that's uh, spoken about in relationship to practice um, is the abstinence by undertaking the precepts. This commitment to live one's life observing the guidelines or the precepts, abstaining from killing sentient beings, abstaining from harmful speech, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from sexual misconduct, harmful sexual activity, and abstaining from 
intoxicants. The third abstinence is called abstinence by eradication, which comes about through the fruits of engaging in the supramundane path of the purification of the heart, the purification of the mind, the purification of consciousness. This path, this Buddha Dhamma path of awakening, of liberation. So what is eradicated is pretty amazing. What is eradicated is any disposition towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. Any any disposition towards engaging in deeds in deeds that cause any harm at all, what are classically called evil deeds. This is an amazing possibility. Absolutely no inclination whatsoever left to engage in any deeds that cause harm. The first two of these three abstinences are mundane. They're pretty common. They're ordinary in a worldly sense. While this one is supramundane, as it's called, meaning it's not common in the worldly sense, but of a purified, of a spiritually purified nature. So I'd like to explore just a little bit more regarding the second abstinence, the one undertaking the precepts. And these are related um, in more specific ways to this second abstinence, the three that I'm going to talk, I'm only going to talk about three of them particularly right now. So right speech. So a deliberate abstinence from wrong speech. What does this mean? A deliberate abstinence from false speech, from slanderous speech, from harsh speech, and from frivolous talking. The second one is right action. So a deliberate abstinence from wrong or harmful bodily actions such as killing or stealing or sexual misconduct, harmful sexual activity. And the last of the one I'd like to mention is right livelihood. So deliberate abs- uh, abstinence from wrong livelihood, such as dealing in poisons, and that's a broad category. There's things that are poisonous that aren't directly thought of as poison, but dealing in poisons, dealing in weapons, dealing in intoxicants, which includes drugs, uh, uh, dealing with animals for slaughter, or, or people to be used in unwholesome or harmful ways. So work, in a sense, that's selfishly or, or, uh, oriented uh, towards usury ways regarding other people, other living beings, not just people. So these these three abstinences function as a shrinking back from harmful deeds, this hiri otapa. And it manifests in the abstinence from such deeds. 
the closest and most pertinent causes uh, uh, for this for this are very the very special and beautiful qualities that I've already mentioned. Uh, we've talked about faith, for one, and shame in engaging in harmful deeds, hiri, and fear of wrongdoing, otapa. And living a relatively simple life, having few wants and wishes, or fewer than maybe we've had and the way we've lived before we started practicing. We could say that all three of these beautiful mental factors can be regarded as the mind, as the heart's wholesome aversion to wrongdoing. The last of the long list of wholesome and beautiful mental factors, wholesome and beautiful mental states, of the mind that has developed through our practice is non-delusion. This is the wisdom faculty. The wholesome and beautiful mental factor of understanding, insight, and eventually the liberated mind, heart, which is really the essence of, of this path that we're traversing. This is a path of the heart. This is a path of the heart-mind. And as Carlos Castaneda said in one of his books, a person of knowledge chooses a path with heart and follows it, then looks and rejoices and laughs, then sees and knows. I think that the importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to your own practice experience uh, as concentration and mindfulness and metta uh, and insight practice continue to blossom is that with knowledge of what is occurring and why it's occurring, we have then the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, to recognize and know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment and without identification and without fear or maybe other aversive reactions and without misunderstandings, without misperceptions, but rather with what is classically called dispassion, which is actually what allows the continuing development of our practice to just keep on unfolding and blossoming. In their fullness, in their utmost maturity. These are the wholesome and beautiful qualities, the wholesome and beautiful capacities of a liberated heart, a liberated mind. So as we come to the end of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer you some advice 
from Robert Piercig. Robert Piercig wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Maybe some of you read that book. It's a, an old book. It's probably one of my first Dharma books. And this is the section, a section called Peace of Mind. So the thing to do when working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions, and right actions produce work which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. And closing the talk from 11th century, words from 11th century Tibetan Buddhist master Atisha. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming to the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Mm -hmm. 